0: Hello and welcome to Monocle24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's show, why size doesn't matter.
1: I think if people in the urban environment realise that this is a spread of some of the best aspects of urbanism, they should look at it in a positive way.
0: Small cities aren't for everyone, but the best ones can offer life-enhancing qualities. Living in them isn't just about space, comfort and affordability – there's a more community-minded feeling too. Over the next 30 minutes, we unpack why it's worth giving small cities a shot and why more and more people have been trading big metropolises for a bit of peace and quiet. Plus, a look at Monocle's very own Small Cities Index. That's all coming up right now on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Stay tuned. So welcome to this week's episode of The Urbanist. There are many reasons why people choose to move to a smaller city, but in most cases it comes down to affordability, being able to buy a house, have a better quality of life, or to get more space for the rent you pay elsewhere. What we're seeing now is a trend where particularly younger people are choosing to relocate to smaller cities. Joel Kotkin is a Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University in California. Joel has researched and written extensively about this topic and geographical movements in US urban areas. He joined me earlier and I started by asking him a very simple question. Are millennials really moving to second or third tier cities? And if so, why?
1: Well, one of the things is that the millennials, a lot of them aren't so young anymore. As they get into their 30s and particularly into their 40s, they start thinking about buying a house, settling down, having a family, and that's increasingly difficult to do in big cities. I grew up in New York, and it was not unusual even to have, like, you know, my dentist lived in on the west side of Manhattan in, in a three-bedroom apartment. Right now, you would have had to essentially be a hedge fund manager to live like that now. So... I think that those opportunities have been declining, and the millennial generation itself is getting older. So that's driving people to cities that you wouldn't associate with millennials like Dallas-Fort Worth or Houston or Nashville or Orlando and even places like Kansas City. This has been occurring basically over the last three, four years, but seems to be accelerating now.
0: And tell me, one of the things we know, we did the survey about small cities here at Monocle, and one of the things we found was that it's been much talked up for years that new technology would make it easier for people to you know, from work from home, work from smaller cities. It never seemed kind of come true. But now, actually, you don't need to be in the big metropolis to run a business, to have a good job, to do all sorts of things. Do you think that technology has fed into this ability to base your lives in smaller cities?
1: There's no question about it. First of all, we have to understand that in the vast majority of the metropolitan areas in the United States, more people work from home than take transit. Even the L.A. area, which is the densest part of the United States, that's definitely now the case. So I think it's becoming more possible. I think as the next generation, as the sort of boomers, you know, who probably are a little more into command and control, begin to fade people are beginning to look at different ways of doing business. I remember one of my students once saying, why do I have to commute an hour to go from one computer screen to another? I mean, it really doesn't make a lot of sense for a lot of jobs. So it's clearly happening. Work at home is the fastest growing part of commuting by far in the United States. And by the way, it's strongest in many of the high-tech centers. And what I'm also seeing increasingly when I speak with people is that. People who maybe are located in a relatively small town, let's say a, you know Fayetteville, Arkansas, or someplace like that, they can do work on a national basis. And I think change doesn't happen overnight, but many of the things that have been predicted are actually happening. They may not have happened as quickly as some might have suspected, but from a historian's point of view, they're happening pretty quickly.
0: And is that good for the dispersal of wealth and opportunity? You know, here at Monocle, often when we cover interesting companies in the US, it turns out they're in Portland, Oregon, or they're in Austin, Texas, not the state capital, but the second or third city. And it's just really interesting that they're they're running technology companies, they're running catering companies, running all sorts of businesses. But it feels that opportunity is being potentially spread a bit wider. Do you think that's the case, or is it still kind of secured in small corridors of opportunity?
1: I think there's, and when we look at where tech jobs are growing, and I think even more so professional and business services, which is the largest category of of high-wage workers in the United States, what we're finding is those jobs are dispersing, first and foremost, to places like Dallas, to the lower cost, generally less dense, metropolitan areas, particularly in the Sun Belt, Intermountain West, places like Utah, you know Salt Lake City, that's certainly already happening. We already know that those businesses and individuals are moving to these places. I think it's really important because I think from a political economy point of view, it is not sustainable that economies are completely concentrated in a few centers what you do is you then, not only do those centers themselves become unbearably expensive and congested and increasingly politically crazy, at the same time, you're leaving aside a huge and very angry and very alienated population, whether it's in parts of old industrial Germany, certainly you know the peripheral parts of France, there's been some great work on that, the British Midlands north of England, it's not socially sustainable to have a large part of your country economically marginalised and another part of the country too expensive for all but the wealthy.
0: Yeah, and we see that here in the UK. You know, Everyone talks a good game about spreading some of the wealth to the north of the country has been very, very slow to happen, whereas in other countries which had a more federal system or were unified from numerous small you know, kingdoms and things, you know, Germany or Italy, you have more of these centres of power but it's an interesting point about the politics of it. Just tell me, in the US, I know that you look to places like Springfield and Grand Rapids. Are these places buoyant then because they're cheaper or because they also offer a quality of life element as well? And that's a bit I'm interested in, whether it's, it's just cheapness that people are going after or obviously somewhere like Boulder, you have access to the great outdoors right on your doorstep. What is it that makes somewhere, you know, a Grand Rapids, for example, successful?
1: Well, I think, you know, again, every city, whether it's a megacity or a small city, has its own unique DNA. But what I would say is there are several different ways that these communities do well. There's obviously the resource cities, you know, the cities that are, let's say, Midland, Texas, which does, you know, generally pretty well because of the enormous amounts of oil and gas. There are other areas that thrive because they're centers of major universities and can offer a very sophisticated amenities in somewhat cheaper places. You mentioned Boulder, but I was thinking particularly of Madison, Wisconsin as a place where you see this happening in a fairly significant way. And then you, you also have, in doing interviews, I would say well over 100 interviews with young people in smaller cities. It's the ability to buy a house. It's the ability to get to the outdoors, as you mentioned, in many places. For instance, Springfield and Fayetteville are near the Ozarks, which are very attractive. And I think that there's also been changes in these cities. Many of them were very, very homogeneous and boring, to be frank. I think of Fargo, North Dakota, which you know obviously doesn't have a great climate and is part of a flat prairie expanse. But they have done such a great job with their downtown. I used to go there 20 years ago, and the food was so bad and the coffee was so bad. I used to bring my own coffee from L.A. because you couldn't find a decent cup of coffee. Now there's plenty of independent little quirky coffee shops. There's art museums. There's a wonderful boutique hotel. Same thing in Springfield, Missouri. So what's really exciting is the best aspects of urbanism are beginning to spread to some of these communities. Now, there are some young people who live in lofts in the downtown. There's a small group, and that's great. But what's really wonderful, if you live in Springfield, around Springfield, or you live around Fargo, unlike trying to get to downtown San Francisco, L.A., it's not a big deal. If you live 20 miles away in a small town outside Fargo, you're downtown in 20 minutes. So these towns, I think, are seeing a kind of urban renaissance that really has not been touched on. So millennials haven't lost their interest in in restaurants, in the arts, in walking environments, in older architecture. They haven't lost it. They're just finding it in places that you would have never suspected would take place.
0: Just finally tell us with all these shifts that you're observing, it sounds like you feel it's a good positive current for smaller cities that we should be investigating them more anywhere else on the map that you think that if we're heading to the U.S. that we should visit?
1: Yeah, I would look certainly in what we call the Intermountain West, which is the area between the Sierra Nevada and the Rockies. Lots of really good examples. Parts of the Great Plains are doing really well. North Dakota, Fargo, South Dakota, Sioux Falls. I think there are some very good examples in Missouri, Kansas City, Springfield in particular, I think are making some really good strides. And then you also have some of this in places like such as Texas. And also, by the way, these areas are, and this is something I'm now beginning to study, are also becoming favored places for immigrants who, like other people, let's say in this country, say, hey, look, I'm not going to go to New York or L.A. because it's too expensive. I can't start a business there. I couldn't afford the rents, But I can go to a second-tier city It's really quite an exciting time. And I think if people in the urban environment realise that this is a spread of some of the best aspects of urbanism, they should look at it in a positive way.
0: That was Joel Kotkin, who's a Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University in California. Joel also has a new book out titled The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us. And this is The Urbanist. One of the cities that made the list of our Small Cities Index is the city of Hobart in Tasmania. We dispatched our correspondent, Michaela Aitken, to bring us this profile of the city that stands proudly at number four on our list. Let's have a listen.
2: Hobart. It's a petite and hilly city that straddles the edge of the world. It calls Antarctica a neighbour, is often bathed in moody bursts of sunlight boasts a relatively mild climate and has a resident mob of wallabies roaming between backyards. Regardless of where you are in the city, a window view will include the peak of nearby Mount Wellington, uneven hillside rows of obscure modernist suburbia, salty seafarers hauling in their latest catch to port, and art deco and brutalist office buildings vying for the city's tallest tower at just 20 storeys high. But don't let this laid-back country feel fool you. The state of Tasmania is currently the second best performing economy in Australia, behind the state of Victoria, which is home to Melbourne. Tasmania's robust economic performance is due in part to substantial population growth, which has in turn driven business investment in the state. This heart-shaped island at the bottom of Australia is no longer the land of retirees. Instead, recent waves of migration have predominantly consisted of a young workforce who are eager to open a market stall, run a carpentry business, or join the city's growing marine and Antarctic science sectors. In comparison to other mainland cities, Hobart's lower cost of rent and overheads, as well as a welcoming professional network, makes the market ripe for energetic entrepreneurs. The younger population's gravitation to move here is to be part of a friendly, diverse, and environmentally conscious community. It's not uncommon for workers to clock off from their nine to five and spend the evening moonlighting in a wine bar or neighbourhood pub. This young and spirited workforce want to spend their time where the energy is, and in Hobart, that energy radiates from the food and drink industry. Tasmanian tourism has long been driven by Mainlanders' thirst for knockout restaurants and wineries. The ripe agricultural land paired with dedicated and talented producers has fostered a booming culinary culture, with standouts now including Sunny, Fico and Deermaker, Even those with a modest budget are able to eat and drink extremely well here. And the joy isn't limited to a few good meals. The Museum of Old and New Art has been open for eight years, employs more than 300 full-time staff, and has positioned Hobart as an incredible culture destination. It's the state's second biggest attraction and, in a nod to his local community, founder David Walsh insists on waiving entry fees for all Tassie residents. There's an exciting thrum in Hobart, yet the true test will be how both local and state governments capture this momentum and spend their budgets in the next five years. Conservative voices still hold sway here and plans for bigger and better roads are outweighing the apparent need for walking, cycling and transport infrastructure. It has been suggested that the city needs a further 20,000 people to bolster the economy and 10,000 trees to improve the streetscapes. And we tend to agree. More medium-density housing would also help. Because, let's face it, we should all probably move to Hobart and start living the good life. For Monocle, I'm Michaela Aitken.
0: Finally, let's move further up our list. For this story, we dispatched our America's editor-at-large, Ed Stocker, to Colorado. Here's his report on the city that has claimed the second place in our ranking, Boulder.
3: Nestled in a valley near the Rocky Mountains, Boulder has long attracted people for its sunny climate and plethora of nearby outdoor activities, from hiking to skiing. And while all the sportiness may draw jokes about Boulderites' proclivity for outdoor gear, the city of 108,500 is much more than just that. Within short driving distance of Denver, the country's fifth largest airport hub, Boulder has always punched above its weight when it comes to work in fields as diverse as academia, design and advertising. As one Boulder resident told me when I was reporting the story for the magazine, people live to work, not the other way around. Still suitably quirky thanks to a hippie and beat generation legacy. Despite the costs of living that often go with desirable locations, Boulder still leads the way in the US when it comes to green space and environmental policy, and it wants to do more. Let's hear from some of the residents themselves. Now, I'm joined on the phone by Daniel Eisenman, Senior Principal at Boulder Design and Branding Agency, Stantec Vibe. Formerly known as Communication Arts, the firm actually did the city's renowned Pearl Street Mall back then, and his colleague, business strategist, Peter Vitale. First off, gentlemen, I'd like to play you this short clip from Suzanne Jones, who... For listeners' benefit, was the mayor of Boulder for eight years until the end of November. I'll come back to you both for some thoughts afterwards.
4: So we have this amazing uh, pipeline of brainiacs and entrepreneurs that come here that, you know, to go to school, to work in the labs, and then there's a lot of cross-fertilisation between the research and the business community, the, the folks that are trying out new things and... Doing startups. So that is part of the allure as well. There's a lot of smart, creative people that are attracted to live here to do amazing things and a workforce that wants to be here as well. Daniel, I want
3: to start with you, just throwing back to those comments. Suzanne was talking about the sort of mixture of people in boulder the fact that you've got a sort of academic population you've got creative people you've got startup culture and you've got the fact that people want to be living in boulder due to the amazing scenery and the sort of energy i just wanted to get your comments on whether you agree with that and and what your takeaway is
5: i would absolutely agree with suzanne it's amazing you're able to strike a very interesting smart conversation with some really interesting people almost anywhere in Boulder, and I think the exchange of ideas is what makes it so unique around here. People are pretty open to discuss and uh, share what they're doing, and I think that adds to the entrepreneurship. There's chemistry happening as a result of it, and I do believe more important is that most of these people that are here are, besides making a, a great life and living in a great place, I think they're legitimately interested in making the world a better place, so there's a common goal. So that's what I I find very exciting about Boulder, and I clearly concur with uh, Mayor Jones. Well, Peter,
3: I want to take up a little bit of what Daniel was saying, talking really about this idea of community. You know, it's a, a fairly small place, and, you know, even the mayor gave this sense of people being very invested in their community, people clubbing together. You know, when I met you, you were very much a sort of connector of people you seem to share those feelings so i wanted to know your take on this idea of community strength in boulder
4: i think that there is a feature in boulder where most everyone here has opted in they have arrived in boulder because they are seeking community they're seeking connection to nature and then what feels somewhat like a base camp of sorts here in the town of Boulder. And because of that opt-in nature, everyone has made a proactive move in their own life to be a part of this, which means that you have a level of engagement that is already at a fairly high level, and it's just a matter of, of activating or igniting that interest. And everyone, of course, has jobs or family or all of the above, and they have to meet those basic needs. And then they have left some room to participate in the community. And for me, who arrived here in the late 90s for grad school and then left and came back, the opportunity to bring those people together to participate in something is phenomenal.
3: A question for you both, really. The population's just over 108,000. It is relatively small, and yet it arguably punches above its weight in lots of different sectors from design to advertising and even academia. Why do you think Boulder has managed to do that?
5: Well, I think when you, going back to Mayor Jones' comment, I think when you get together with all these creative people in different sectors, not just in design, but in science, in aerospace, in the food industry, in food and beverage industry as well, when you get all these people together, then things started to happen organically. So yes, we are 108,000 people. You do get some incredible horsepower in this town and i think the ability of this town to connect beyond just boulder we basically boulder has footprint in a lot of places around the world just our our office we've done work in 35 countries from boulder i know that the federal labs have an international impact for example ncar or noaa Basically lead the way in climate change and telling us how the world is changing. And that punches above its weight beyond being a local element. Uh, obviously, the, the university has uh, an incredible reach. You know, it's one of the top universities in our country, certainly the top in the state, number one in aerospace and produces uh, a lot of scientists for NASA. So because of that, it's starting to, uh, it, well, it started many, many decades ago to create a lot of roots in a lot of other places that come back to Boulder and feed the pipeline in a way. The idea and what this place stands for is a model almost in a way of good growth and good measurement and good attraction of the right talent.
4: I'd echo all that and it's interesting that you can have success and then you have to deal with the success and Boulder has made decisions around its land planning where we have 45,000 acres of open space that we purchased from ourselves surrounding 15,000 acres of town. And we have a height limit. as you covered in your piece. So that now, it's incumbent on us to pay the other half of that contract, which is how we grow intelligently. And Boulder has the most stringent energy code in the country and seeks to be a leader in so many places. And we have an opportunity now to develop methodologies for inclusivity and equity in an environment that is constrained. And going back to the environment, the university and the labs were key to this, there's some great lore around the city getting the opportunity to put its name forward for the university, and the money being raised over two days, and a gentleman racing to the capital with the proof of funds to start the university here as opposed to other cities in Colorado, and you had that same commitment from the community for the labs being placed here. And then you've, of course, got that opportunity for set and setting, which is echoed somewhat in the Buddhist teachings and the work of the Beats who are here. And so the set and setting, Colorado is beautiful. Boulder is nestled up against the Flatirons, and it speaks to the people in a way that they can yearn for something higher. No pun intended. (laughs)
3: I wanted to ask though, you know, we were talking about the desirability of Boulder, you just referenced the beautiful flat irons. With every place that is desirable, they do invariably become more expensive because more people want to move there. We've talked about some of the amazing things about Boulder, but what are the challenges as well? I remember that we discussed, for example, the sort of idea of density versus sort of expansion sideways, models for growth in the future, affordability. Maybe both of you can just touch on what for you is your most important area that the city needs to work on to ensure the community continues to grow.
5: Most of these problems are actually self-inflicted by the choices that we've made over the years. They don't seem to be incredible problems. There are some problems. Uh, I think they're solvable, and I think we have the choices here to make it better. Certainly, we've elected not to grow. I think the city grows uh, 0.9% a year. And we've elected to keep our height restrictions uh, in an effort to keep a manageable, walkable environment where you do see the sun and you do see the sky and the mountains on a regular basis. We've elected to buy the open space around us, and we do have a sort of a ring that is miles and miles that kind of contains the city in this beautiful, picturesque environment. And now the issue is the realities come that people do need jobs, people do need to make a living, and there is no housing. There is not enough housing that is affordable and prices are coming up. We also have an enormous migration from California and other states, where um, property values are much higher, so you can get a much bigger home still in Boulder, Colorado, for what you would get, say, in San Francisco and Los Angeles. So that in itself is starting to drive the prices, Uh, The sort of the pressures off the coast are starting to be felt here in Boulder and in Denver to a certain degree. So I don't believe the citizens of Boulder are interested in sort of uh, increasing the growth cap. Uh, I think everybody enjoys the small town aspect of it. I think uh, we have the choice whether or to add more jobs to the town and the 60,000 people that come into Boulder on a daily basis. I do believe that uh, future transportation is going to make a huge impact on how people engage with the town and how the 60,000 people come in. I am a big advocate of autonomous vehicles and different methods of transportation and uh, certainly increasing our bicycle trails. I think the city has done an outstanding job at creating an an enormous network of bicycles and I think it needs to increase. I still think that uh, even though we have a great uh, public transportation system, that the headways, which is the time in between uh, you get picked up by a bus, could increase. Allowing people not to stay and wait, which is one of the reasons people don't use transportation. We're sort of in a world that requires a lot of speed and time, and we want to get to our destination and not be waiting. So if we can increase the headways, it would be would be fabulous. And I think the other thing is uh, inclusivity is a big point as we grow. You don't want to end up in a community where just everybody's rich. That doesn't lead to the multicultural and multidimensional aspect that a vibrant environment requires. And I think inclusivity, affordable housing and pushing for as much affordable housing and affordable storefronts so that you can have that entrepreneurship and that young person or that uh, disadvantaged person being able to start a business. So those are all things that need to be looked upon and and, and placed emphasis. But like I said, the good news is that most of these are self-inflicted problems and then we can also... Uh, deflect and start solving some of them.
0: A report there by Monocle's very own Ed Stocker. There were a few basic rules when we were compiling this ranking. Small cities are places of 200,000 people or fewer, where you're able to get an optimum balance between social and cultural diversity. And a little bit of quaintness too. Good transit infrastructure, connections to an international airport and a progressive city government were a must too. Then came in some more hard metrics, such as crime rates, quality of education and life expectancy. In the end, 25 cities from across the globe made the cut, and you can read about them all in full in the latest edition of The Forecast, which is on sale now in all good newsstands. I'm sure you're going to be curious to find out who made it to the number one spot. Well, that's all for this edition of The Urbanist. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens. David also edited the show with editing assistance from Miles Blumson. And to play you out of this week's episode, here's Bronski Beat with Small Town Boy. Thank you for listening, city lovers.